Welcome to episode 129 of Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm your host, Jesse Bartholomew, and I have two stories for you today. They are both true crime from 100 years ago in Kentucky. The first one is about a murder at an asylum, and that takes place in my hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. The second one, just down the road, a poisoning in the countryside in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Before I get started, I want to mention again, I have merch on my website, kyhistoryhaunts.com. You can go there, click on the merch tab. I have sweatshirts. I have beanies. It's getting cold outside. It's fall. You need new fall clothes. I've got you covered. All right, enjoy the episode. April 15th, 1923. Lakeland's patient's chest is crushed. Guard is quizzed in death of Willie Swift, asylum inmate. Willie Smith, 47 years old, a patient at the Central Hospital for the Insane at Lakeland, was found in an unconscious condition yesterday morning in his ward with his chest crushed. He regained consciousness for a moment, but was unable to tell the name of his assailant, and he died at 5.42 o'clock in the afternoon. Dr. Roy L. Carter, coroner, and Dr. W. A. Gillison, superintendent of the institution, quizzed a guard for an hour or more, but up to an early hour this morning, no arrest had been made. Swift was admitted to the asylum March 28, 1923, from Caneyville, Kentucky. I released an episode all about Lakeland Asylum in September 2021, so just over two years ago. I'm not going to get too much into the history of Lakeland today, so if you want a more comprehensive refresher before you listen to this episode, go back to episode 63. I will give a very brief synopsis for context. In the 1870s, Kentucky's few psychiatric hospitals were severely overcrowded. What had been used as a facility to house juvenile delinquents was converted into a state hospital, what would become known as Central State Hospital or Lakeland Asylum, near where Anchorage is today in Louisville. Unfortunately, back then, Anyone who couldn't really take care of themselves would be grouped together in one of these facilities, including people with learning disabilities, the mentally ill, the poor, and the elderly. Employees were not paid well, they worked extremely long hours, and they typically ended up sleeping or even living at the hospital themselves. Lakeland became notorious for abusing patients, even as far back as the 1880s, it was often swept under the rug simply because no one knew how to fix the problem, and often the patients were there because there was no one left to care for them or advocate for them in the first place. So who would even be there to worry about their mistreatment? I found a story that started out about a patient at Lakeland and ended with an investigation into the entire facility. This would happen again and again. This is just one of many stories. Willie Swift's death appeared suspicious to the local police, leading them to conduct a full investigation. Swift's body was in terrible condition. The coroner found the right side of his chest completely crushed. He'd been kicked and badly beaten. He had 10 broken ribs and there was bruising all over his body. The police were so concerned, they ended up exhuming the body of another patient who'd recently passed away to make sure there wasn't evidence of a similar beating. And in that case, there wasn't. 
After doing some digging and conducting interviews around the facility, the police zoned in on a pair of employees, H.G. Knapp and Charles Falconer, two attendants who worked at Lakeland, were indicted for Swift's murder. And they were indicted together, but tried separately. Falconer's trial started in late May, and another patient at Lakeland, a man named O.E. Wilson, testified at his trial that he knew exactly who murdered Willie Swift, but he was too afraid to say it outright. He even told the story, but once he got close to revealing the murderer, he told the jury, quote, I guess I'd better not tell anymore. I'm afraid. I've said all I can. The county attorney, J. Matt Chilton, begged his witness to divulge more information, but Wilson wouldn't say another word. The judge even threatened to put him in jail for contempt, but that threat didn't seem to bother Mr. Wilson. In fact, he may have been safer there. Before they'd reached this point in his testimony, Wilson had revealed that he'd seen yet another attendant, Ben Robbins, beat Mr. Swift with a mop handle, and on another occasion, he had seen Mr. Falconer kick Mr. Swift. All Wilson would end up revealing about Swift's death was that he saw Falconer, Robbins, and one other man with Mr. Swift, and that later the night after Swift died, that third man, who he didn't know, came to his bedside and told him that he would be killed if he shared any information about what he had seen. That other attendant, who would not be put on trial himself, was called as a witness in Falconer's trial. That attendant, Ben Robbins, was asked to respond to the allegations that now two witnesses had testified to seeing him beat Swift with a mop handle, and that one of them had seen Robbins kick Swift in the chest. And I couldn't find anything about how he responded to these allegations, but I'm sure he denied it. Yet another witness mentioned that they heard a strange noise and that Falconer told the witness they were, quote, sapping up Swift. And with that, he allegedly showed a sock filled with bars of soap, which there's a, I don't know if it's actually true or not, but they say that if you fill a bag full of soap uh, and you beat someone with it, it doesn't leave bruising. I've never looked into whether that's true or not. Um, but yeah, the implication was that Falconer and his uh, colleagues were beating Swift with soap. One of the night supervisors at Lakeland testified that Falconer was having trouble with Swift the night of April 10th, four nights before the murder. And that altercation resulted in Swift suffering a cut over his left eye. Falconer did take the stand in his own defense. He denied everything the patient witnesses had said. The only part he admitted to was what happened in front of the night watchman. He said other than that, he always treated Swift with kindness. I think earlier I said these men were indicted for Swift's murder. I should clarify that County Attorney Chilton was seeking a manslaughter conviction, which would have carried a significantly lesser punishment than a murder charge, so the maximum sentence for Falconer would have been 21 years. Now the next day, May 30th, it was reported there was a hung jury. After two and a half hours, they were at an even deadlock and no juror was willing to budge. They said their biggest concern was that there was just no direct 
evidence that Mr. Falconer had been directly involved in the specific beating that killed Mr. Swift. And as far as I could tell, that was true. This was a case of he said, he said. And who are they going to believe? Doctors and attendants of a hospital or the psych patients who live there? Things are really just getting interesting, though, because after this hung jury, the judge is not finished with Lakeland yet. The same jury from the Falconer trial is handed this report of investigation, and they're basically told, it's my understanding, they're now a grand jury, and they get to make a decision about whether or not there should be a formal investigation into not just these few attendants that have been put on trial, but of all of Lakeland Asylum. The jurors look over this report and they look back at how this trial went down and they decided that yes, Lakeland needed to be investigated. Even though the lawyers couldn't prove that Falconer was involved in this murder, they did feel like they had been lied to by some of the Lakeland employees who had testified. So it was official. They were going to conduct a quote, swift probe into Lakeland Asylum. The investigation began on June 20th, 1923, a little over two months after Swift's murder, and 10 days later, they were ready to report their findings. Quote, jury clears Lakeland in quiz report, legislative inquiry with view to bond issue and better facilities urged. This jury produced several findings based on their study of Lakeland. First and foremost, they said the hospital is too poorly funded and the employees are terribly underpaid and overworked. Quote, Our investigation was thorough, as three members of this jury have relatives confined at this institution, and all of us have been critical in our attempts to find incidents of fault. The report is pretty long, but I do want to pull out a couple more sentences that I thought were interesting. Quote, This grand jury has labored faithfully on the situation at Lakeland, and finds the place well and capably managed at this time. The overcrowded conditions of the wards and lack of facilities for handling the cases properly is a shame and a crime. It goes on. Several cases of death were investigated by us and were found to have been caused by other inmates, convulsions, or the natural result of some loathful disease. They also mentioned how much they loved the farming program, and if you want to know more about that, go back and check out that other episode, 63. Now, this jury actually spent an entire day on the grounds of Lakeland, free to kind of roam about and investigate however they wanted. So they did get some hands-on experience uh, actually being there. The other thing the grand jury seemed really concerned about was how many tuberculosis patients they had at Lakeland that they didn't seem to have room for or have like the proper care for. So I had to look this up, just the timing of it. And I didn't realize, I guess I forgot, Waverly Hills was still smaller in 1923. It was not the, the large building that it is now that you can see if you go visit, which you should, it's October. Um, but yeah, it would be under construction in the years just following this to accommodate the growing number of patients, but at the time it was still quite small. So they couldn't just send their overflow over to Waverly. I'm sure it was already full. Now, here's kind of the summation of 
this grand jury's findings, and I almost didn't include this because I didn't even want to read it out loud, but I think it speaks volumes about this time period. Quote, Too much praise cannot be given the Board of Charities and Corrections. After a visit by the grand jury of the Lakeland Institution, the magnitude of the duties of the Board of Charities and Corrections was so impressed on every member of the grand jury that we wonder how any individual or newspaper would dare to offer any criticism. When one considers the individuals who make up this board of charities and corrections, their high standing, their unquestionable intelligence, their unselfishness in giving their time without remuneration, it is unjust to even intimate disloyalty. The need for all state institutions is more room Every charitable and state institution is overcrowded and undermanned. Feeble-minded persons must be confined with the insane. A place somewhere in this state is needed for colored feeble-minded. These needs are enormous, and if Kentucky keeps her self-respect, sufficient money must be gotten to remedy these conditions. Provision must be made for criminally imbecilic and degenerate persons. So Charles Falconer's trial ended in a hung jury. Lakeland Asylum was cleared of any wrongdoing by a grand jury. And the last thing I could find about this specific part of Lakeland's sordid history was a tiny clipping from September 1923 that announced H.G. Knapp, the last attendant to be tried in the Swift case, had his case dismissed. I realize it's entirely possible that a fellow patient at Lakeland beat up Mr. Swift, but I'm not convinced. And I also think it's naive to think that patients at Lakeland would have made any public grievances to this grand jury while they were visiting. I mean, they could have easily been threatened or intimidated into saying that everything was fine. A real investigation into a place like that takes a lot more than one day on the grounds and a few days of research. Unfortunately, Lakeland went on to operate in a not-so-above-board way for decades and decades after the Swift murder. And I wish I could tell you more about Willie Swift, the victim, but I just couldn't find anything. All I know is that he was from Caneyville, which is northwest of Mammoth Cave Park. I don't know why he was committed to Lakeland, but he was only there a little over two weeks before he was murdered. Our next story brings us to Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, which is a small town in Anderson County, west of Lexington. It was settled by Germans in the early 1780s and incorporated by the State Assembly in 1850. The Four Roses Distillery was founded there in 1888, and the Physical Distillery was built in 1910. Lawrenceburg is also home to the Wild Turkey Distillery, and I hope I don't offend anybody by saying this, but those happen to be two of my least favorite bourbons. But Anderson County is pretty, so if you're ever in the area, swing by the town square, there's some cute places to have lunch, and the Haunted Anderson Hotel is there too, which I visited in episode 106. Also, I went to a festival there once, and they had fried peaches that were incredible. Guys, if you've never had fried peaches, put them on your list. Anyway, in the 1920s, Lawrenceburg was home to the Tipton family. 
Mrs. Fanny Tipton, her husband William, and their children and grandchildren. Mrs. Fanny Tipton was around 55 years old in 1923. In the Lexington Leader, she's described this way, quote, a familiar type of the backcountry farm woman of the South. Mrs. Tipton has heavy, toll-hardened hands. As witnesses of the 35 years, she has helped the poor man she married to attain some measure of competency and a little hill farm. Lines of more than 55 years crisscross the parchment skin of her face, noticeable in any crowd for the small, sharp eyes, pinched expression about the mouth, and pointed chin. The Tipton's 27-year-old son, Everett, was head over heels for an 18-year-old girl named Jessie Brewer. Against his mother's wishes, Everett and Jessie had taken off to Jeffersonville, Indiana to elope. That was August of 1923, and they returned to Lawrenceburg right after. Almost exactly a month later, tragedy struck. A doctor was summoned to the Tipton household. The young bride, Jessie, was violently ill and getting worse by the minute. Within 15 minutes of the doctor's arrival, Jessie Brewer Tipton was dead. Her new mother-in-law, Fanny Tipton, also appeared unwell. She wasn't nearly as sick as Jessie, but she seemed a little under the weather. They thought perhaps it was the ice cream the two women had been eating. The coroner, Dr. E. M. Leathers, arrived and decided to send the girl's stomach contents to the Kentucky State Experiment Station to be examined. Linwood Brown would be the lead chemist in charge of the examination. The following day, the Park City Daily News reported that Mrs. Tipton, who anyone close to the family knew was opposed to the young couple's marriage, was seen purchasing a quantity of strychnine in town just the day before her daughter-in-law's death. At the store, she apparently told the clerk she had a rat problem. And there was also this other strange incident. Everett Tipton, the young widowed groom, said a few days earlier his wife and mother had also eaten some watermelon that seemed to make them sick. When he looked at the melon closely, it appeared as though someone had injected it with some small tool like a hypodermic needle. Just a few days later, a warrant was served at the Tipton home and Fanny Tipton was arrested and taken to the Anderson County Jail. She would not make a statement, but her husband and daughter swore they had been with her at all times in recent days and nothing had been amiss. I found it interesting Nothing had come back from the lab at this point. They arrested her even before they knew for sure how Jesse had died. Mrs. Tipton was arraigned later that same week. Her attorney's request for bail was denied, and an examining trial was scheduled for the following week. But while incarcerated, it was determined Mrs. Tipton was on the brink of a nervous collapse. She was given an around-the-clock caretaker, but then transferred to the Louisville jail, where they had staff better equipped to monitor and treat her condition. They decided she was in such bad shape, she wasn't fit to stand trial anytime soon, so they continued her case to March of the following year. 
For a while, her condition only seemed to get worse. In December, it was reported from the Louisville jail that she'd suffered a complete nervous break. But by March of 1924, her condition had improved and she was ready to go to trial. However, the state was not. They were having a heck of a time selecting a jury. The Commonwealth's attorney was only accepting jurors who were pro-death penalty, and oddly enough, they were having a hard time finding pro-death penalty folks in rural Kentucky in 1924. I found that interesting. The judge asked the sheriff to go round up some potential jurors from the opposite side of the county as where the Tiptons lived, who might not know about the case. That proved impossible. And halfway through March, they still had no jury. This time, the judge told the sheriff to go to Franklin County to look for jurors. So finally, on March 18th, after examining 114 potential jurors, the trial of Fanny Tipton began. Her son, Everett, whose wife she was on trial for murdering, sat next to her the entire time. She entered a not guilty plea and took the stand in her own defense. And she swore emphatically that she never made threats against Jesse. She supported the marriage. She liked Jesse, said Jesse was a pleasure to have around the house. She said she even grew to love her. No matter how convincing her speech might have been, the next witness probably dissolved any memory the jurors may have had of it. Druggist Speed Wood, amazing name, Speed Wood. He testified that just one day before the poisoning, Mrs. Tipton came into the store to buy a lot of strychnine. Linwood Brown found 14 milligrams of strychnine in Jesse's stomach. A friend of the family testified he heard Mrs. Tipton telling folks that her son had gotten married, but that they wouldn't be together long. And that wasn't the only family acquaintance to testify to statements of that nature made by Mrs. Tipton. On March 20th, 1924, after five hours of deliberation, Mrs. Fanny Tipton was found guilty of her daughter-in-law's murder and sentenced to life in the Frankfurt State Reformatory. The next day, her attorneys filed for a new trial, but that motion was swiftly denied. An appeal was filed in April, but by February of 1925, her conviction had been upheld. She was transferred again to the Louisville jail. This time, it's unclear exactly why. In April of 1933, almost a decade later, the Department of Public Welfare recommended the parole of five women serving life sentences in Kentucky. One of those women was Fanny Tipton. I tried to find out what became of the Tipton family later on, but I couldn't find much. There are only two more mentions of a Fanny Tipton in Kentucky in the time period that could have made sense for her to still be alive. One of them is from 1937, just a few years after she was paroled. There's a Fanny Tipton listed as being indicted for grand larceny. I have no way to confirm if that was her, Keep in mind, she would have been in her 70s at that point, but I guess it's possible, especially if she was struggling to get by after being released from prison. I have no idea if her husband was still alive or if her family was still there for her when she got out. And then the last time is in 1941. It's listed in the Lexington Leader 
that there's a Fanny Tipton in the hospital. Again, no way to for sure confirm that it's her, but it's possible. It's also unclear what became of Everett Tipton. He was 27 when his 18-year-old wife was murdered. On a genealogy website I use, it says he was married twice, but I'm not sure if the other marriage was before or after Jesse. There were also two marriage announcements for an Everett Tipton in Kentucky newspapers in the late 20s, but again, I can't confirm that either of them are him for certain. Unfortunately, the only character in this story whose ending I do know for certain is Jesse's, whose life ended way too soon. That's going to do it for another episode. If you aren't already in our Facebook group, search Kentucky History and Haunts and more on Facebook and join the group. It's growing. We share a lot of good information. You can always send an email to kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com if you want to talk, if you want to suggest a topic for a future episode or whatever. Uh, I have Instagram. It's at kyhistoryhaunts. You can DM me on there as well. Um, And be sure to check out the website, kyhistoryhaunts.com. That is all the housekeeping I have for today. Thank you for listening. Until next time.